Hey everyone and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host Max Bowen and joining me now, this is a fun little reunion because we are actually old friends from our days in journalism. Author Mary Ford joins me to talk about her recently released book, Boy at the Crossroads, From Teenage Runaway to Class President. That's a very good title and Mary, thank you for joining me. I am so glad that we get to have this conversation. Well, Max, thank you for having me. I'm so excited for this opportunity and to share my story of uh, journalism to authorship, which was kind of an interesting road to take. (laughs) And you know what? We're definitely going to talk about the book at length, but I want to first talk about going from journalism to novelists, because I know those are two very, very different paths. What was it like making that change in terms of writing styles? Well, I did not realize how different it is. So when I when I retired, um, it was like falling off a cliff because when you're the editor of two local newspapers, you work 40 to 60 hours a week. Um, you always have deadlines. You always have stories to pursue. And, and I loved it. I love my towns. I was editor of the Hingham Journal and the Cohasset Mariner for almost 30 years. And I just relished the job. So suddenly it was over. So I thought, okay, what am I going to do now? And to just circle back a little bit, I had these tape recordings that I had my husband make over the years when he would travel to his home in East Tennessee and just record his memories. He was a he had run away from home at the age of 13. And I thought he had such an interesting story. So I had, when I first retired, I had all these little mini cassettes. They weren't even digitals. And I had to sit down and kind of go through this drudgery. But I signed up and I learned about this through a friend from groups that are called meetups and they're free to join. And there's lots of them. You can you can join a meetup if you love collecting stamps or you love cooking. So for me, it was writing. And one of the meetups that I went to, which is in Abington, a nearby town, um, there were 22 in the group. It was before COVID. So it was we were meeting together and um, we would submit everyone had a ch- one or two chances to submit some pages everyone critiqued and our leader would then write up and talk to us about our um about our work and he said to me something that stuck with me he said mary you have to learn to leave the newswoman behind so what i was doing was writing a report and nobody wants to read a 250 page report on anything i mean it's too much so i had to learn how to show more and do less telling so to me the transition was from informational writing, which is what journalism really is. It can be very creative, but basically we're trying to uh, relay information. So someone understands why their taxes are going up or why there's no water in the reservoir or why someone loses an election or, you know, what happened in the latest crime, but very much sticking to facts. And with um, with authors, with authorship, you can do a lot of things that you couldn't do in journalism, but you also have to show and expand. So once I realized that, it freed me up to um, to take a story, which was based on my husband's true story, but fictionalize it to a point where obviously I had to make up dialogue. I would say about 85 to 90 percent of the book is true. But it's been enhanced and embellished because you want to make it interesting to read. And, and it's his story of um, being the 15th of 16 children from East Tennessee and running away from home um, 
coming from this kind of a family, very poor, hitchhiking through the South and ending up in New Orleans selling hot dogs. So when the first time I met him and I heard this story, I said, someday this is going to be a book. And I, it took me a long time, but finally I managed to do it. Well, you know, I, I imagine with the with the other copious amounts of free time you had as a newspaper editor, yeah. you know, you had plenty of yeah. time to write a book too, right? Oh, yeah. Laura knows us <laughs> journalists just sit around half the day just doing nothing, right? Exactly. Exactly, yeah. Now, yeah. you talked about the challenges of going from journalism to, uh, to novelist. Right. What aspect would you think was the hardest part? Was it doing dialogue? Was it character creation, scene setting? Oh, good. That's a good question. Um, I think the scenes were were the hardest thing. Um, they weren't so hard once I got into it. I started taking a course. I did the meetups, and then I signed up for a course at Grub Street. And I initially thought I was writing a memoir, and then I was told that it wasn't a memoir because it wasn't about me. And so it was. If it was written by my husband, then it could be a memoir. So I, I thought, okay, and that also kind of freed me up. But I I submitted my manuscript to different instructors at Grub Street that I took courses from three different times, and they'll do it on their own time and you pay them for it. And the first time um, my instructor came back with all of these things, seen, seen, seen. So just don't report what they're doing make a scene out of this. So that was a little bit of a challenge. So then I took a course on how to do scenes. So I did a lot of different courses. And finally, it started to come together. Once I really got into it, it, it's like journalism for me. Um, The first time I walked into a newsroom, I was 35 years old. I didn't know how to write it write a news story, but I learned. So I'm a lifelong learner. And so when I went and did these courses or went to these meetups, I have a fairly thick skin. I wanted their critique. I wanted these people that were more knowledgeable than me to say, this is what you need to do. This is how you do it. And I was very fortunate to uh, find some really brilliant people who are willing to share and encourage you. So I encourage anybody out there. I'm a great believer. Everyone has a book in them. Took me into my 70s to get mine out. You can do it too. And on a side note, a journalist telling me, I just asked a great question. That's really high praise because we asked some tough questions, definitely. What would you say was the best advice you got, though, going through all these classes and talking to all these experts? Uh, Well, the best advice I had was when um, the instructor told me I was in the wrong genre, that I was writing a novel. So once I figured it was a novel, I wasn't as anchored to the actual facts of the situation. And so that was great advice. And that, and then leaving the newswoman behind, um, which was tough for me because I prided myself on being having great news judgment and being this awesome newswoman all these years, and um, I had to kind of put that hat off. But the the positive thing about us as journalists is that that we write and we have deadlines and we get down to it. What I have found um, through a lot of classes and meetups that I'm in, that there's so many people out there writing, but they procrastinate and they never really bring it all to fruition. I was determined that I was gonna get this thing done and out. Did you set a deadline? I, well, I set many deadlines, you know, for, um, you know, different groups that I was in. If you, if you join groups, the nice thing about them is that if you were a really good group uh, member, a group citizen, I think is how it's described, is you must contribute. 
And then the hardest part for me wasn't so much contributing, it's critiquing other people. I find that really challenging. As a newspaper editor, I had no trouble with that at all because I always knew what the story was, getting to the point and getting a lot of the fluff out of there. But now the fluff's got to be in there. So it's a little harder. And there's a lot of people out there that are writing fantasy and a lot of stuff about different worlds. And I find that really challenging to try to figure out what the heck's happening, (laughs) what is going on. Um, It just seems to me like the future in so many movies and books is this dark place where everyone's a eunuch and it's black and white and... and, (laughs) people are dying and killing each other and it looks like a horrible place to be. So I kind of like the old fashioned kind of historical stuff, which is I can go back to the fifties, which is where my book takes place. My husband's um, grew up in the fifties and when he ran away, it was 1955 and he was 13. And I have found that a big audience of mine are the late are the either late baby boomers or just pre-baby boomers and they love it because it it takes them back to that time you could kind of get away with stuff that wasn't that serious but there were still a lot of really good values family values hard work chores things like that how about the dialogue because i know like back back in the 50s we didn't talk like we do now did you have to like Stop and say, okay, wait a minute. How would they say this certain thing? I did. I used a lot of, um, I looked up a lot of slang in the 50s. Of course, I grew up more in the 60s and I can remember a lot of it. And some of it has changed the meanings a little bit. But I looked up a lot of that. And then um, I went over everything with my husband. I first, I transcribed the tapes that he made over the years when he would drive to East Tennessee, where he's from, and just talk into a tape recorder. And then when I managed to get everything pretty much down, I went over the chronology, and I would ask him these specific questions. Like, you know, one of the the key thing for me was, which was difficult, though I have, we have two sons, so it wasn't totally foreign, is how to get in the mind of a 14-year-old or 13-year-old boy. And like, so you're on the road and you haven't showered in five days or bathed. You're wearing the same underwear. He says, boys don't care about that. And I said, well, how did it make you feel? (laughs) How did it make you feel? Were you scared? It was really hard for me to pull things out of him and to have him tell me, how he was feeling about these things. That was a that was a huge challenge because I just, I don't know, it was just really weird the way he could just say, no, boys didn't care about that or no, nope, I wasn't scared. And I said, well, you must have been, you know, did you miss your family? Did this or that? So it was interesting, but, but his personal story is so unique because it's the 15th of 16 children. Both of his parents were born in Southeast Kentucky around 1900. His mother was from a coal mining family. His dad worked for the railroad. And it was it was as if they had one foot in the 1800s. They were old school. Um, both of their families had lost numerous children before they were adults, you know, just as infants or young children. So his dad wasn't even named until he was three or four years old because they didn't think he'd live. So it was like, well, we're not going to bother to name him. So it was actually a preacher that named him um, and said, what's this one called? And they said, well, we haven't named him yet. I guess they just called him boy or something. And so it was just such a different way. So they didn't coddle their children. 
So they have all these kids and um, they left um, East uh, Southeast Kentucky in the middle of the night because um, Lee, my husband's dad, whom I've never met, he died um, in the early sixties. He had helped uh, finger the man that had murdered his brother. And so these guys were being released from the state pen after five years when they were sentenced to life. So who knows why? But um, they were coming to get him because they were you know, going to settle the score. So in the middle of the night, they had eight kids at that time. He picked up Cora and the eight kids and moved over the mountains to East Tennessee. So that was years before my husband was born. But it was such an interesting story. So he came from this sort of old school Appalachian family that just believed in hard work. They didn't cuddle. They didn't kiss you. They didn't make you feel good if you were feeling bad. You just worked hard and kind of got on with it. And that's how he was able to survive on the road, you know, hitchhiking. He had to sell a lot of stuff door to door. Um, they, you know, they sold hot tamales and, you know, his dad worked for the railroad. So anytime there was a surplus, he brought it home and they sold things to try to make money, you know, to live. So he just had this survival instinct and was, you know, went on this adventure of a lifetime. And then, um, so the, so kind of the backstory of how he even got started on this was um, he, he grew up in Knoxville, which is a city, but it would be the equivalent of Quincy. It wasn't nearly as big as Boston. Um, and then his brother, Bill, who was 10, 11 years older than he was, actually came down with schizophrenia. Um, I don't know if you come down with it, but he became a schizophrenic and they didn't know what it was back then. They called it dementia precox, but you couldn't have Bill in the city. You know, it was like, if you've ever read To Kill a Mockingbird, it was kind of that situation. So his dad moved them out to Hall's Crossroads. And um, that's why it's called Boy at the Crossroads, because he lived in this little town that was literally just a crossroads. And um, he kept going back into Knoxville, which was, quote, the city. And he hooked up with these older guys and they were taking these cars for joy rides and they only took Mercury's and they had to be a 52 or 53 Mercury because under the ignition, there was a gap. And if you took a, a piece of foil from a stick of juicy fruit gum and stuck it up there, the car started. So they took these Mercury's and went joyriding all over the hills. And the police caught on to this and said, you know, they called them the Mercury gang. What's going on? People are coming out from these St. Mary's Hospital or office buildings and their Mercury's aren't there. And they didn't hurt any of them. They just abandoned it. Got another one that had gas and wasn't locked. So he ended up, he was in the eighth grade and he got called down to the principal's office and there were two detectives waiting and he figured the other guys had turned him in. So he was arrested, taken out of school, and then went through a court process. And when he was ready to go back to school, he said, you know, he was walking down the hill and he said, I can't go. You know, I'm going to be called a jailbird. I'm still the new kid and they're going to make fun of me and tease me. So we had 50 cents in his pocket and he just put it on his thumb and kept going. So then there's a whole story about where he travels and what happens. And he comes home, leaves again, comes home, leaves again. But finally, he goes back to school. He's in, in high school and they keep him back a year because he missed an entire year. And instead of making fun of him because he'd been places, he kind of walked into the school and he was like Elvis and Johnny Cash rolled into one and they made him class president. So it was just kind of a funny story. And he ended up loving 
he he had a tough time. Home was still a very tough place, but um, he was very popular because he had kind of had stories to tell. These kids had never been anywhere, so so that's kind of it. It's a coming of age story, but it appeals more to people that have already come of age. I've I've discovered rather than the average thirteen year old, it seems to be appealing to more of like the seventy year old set. So, <laughs> which is fine. There's a lot of us. Exactly. And that is such an absolutely amazing story. So so at what age does um does the book wrap up? It wraps up when he goes into the Air Force. So oh, he's about okay. 19. And that really turned his life around. You know, he, oh. he tried to go to college. He asked a brother for help. And um and his brother said, you know, do two years and I'll maybe I'll consider helping you then. And so he joined the Air Force. So it talks about that. And then um, the sad part is, so he um, he comes home um, just before he was um, stationed in North Africa in Wheelis Air Force Base, which no longer exists. It was in Libya back at the time. And um, so he was out in like um, San Antonio and he was in uh, another um, base where he went through different training and um, parts of Tennessee, Smyrna, I think there were different ones. And he would hitchhike home and he noticed like when he'd hitchhike from the Tennessee base, if he had his uniform on, he got rides right away, you know, so people hitchhiked all the time. But anyway, he went home before he went to North Africa and his dad said, um, and his dad was a rough character. You know, he um, suffered from a lot of um, health problems as time went on. And, um, and so he had said to to my husband, he said, you know, you're not going to see me again. And he goes, oh, no, you're such a big, tough guy. You know, I'll, you'll definitely see me. But he didn't say he loved him. Never did. So he was in North Africa and he got the call in the middle of the night that his dad had died. And it just like totally threw him. And, you know, so it's kind of a very emotional ending because he realized he didn't have that opportunity to, you know, and they, and his dad didn't have it either. You know, it wasn't like that's the kind of family they were. So, so it's a good story. It stays with people after they read it and it's easy to read. It's not that long. It's about 250 pages. If you're on a long flight or a medium to long flight, you can read it and you're done. Hmm. Short declarative sentences. I'm kind of like a female Hemingway in that Ah, regard. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, this is all right. Um, you know, one thing I'm really curious about is how the book started, because I know that, like, you know, first draft to final draft are never the same. Yeah. So what kinds of changes did you make through the editing process? Well, I, I took a lot of advice and um, I pretty much because it had a chronological uh, arc to it for my first attempt that made it easy. I wasn't really making something up from whole cloth. I had the story. So now I just had to to write it. And how do you make it interesting? What vignettes? Like my husband had hundreds and hundreds of vignettes and all of them were so interesting, but most of them ended up on the cutting room floor because they didn't, the key is it has to advance the story. And you'll you'll find a lot of people, especially through self-publishing today, everyone wants to write their memoir and they all think, I've got a story to tell. Everyone does. But what makes your story more interesting than someone else's? And and really the key is 
you have to have something that you have to have a, a real story and it has to move along. No one just wants to sit and listen to how you talk to your grandma or how you mow the lawn or, you know, how you used to go out and have penny candy after school or, you know, play sandlot baseball. That's all wonderful. And maybe your grandchildren will read it. Probably not. Um, they're not going to be interested. So if you've got a story to tell, you know, whether you were a prisoner of war or whether you did this, doesn't even have to be your whole life. Hone in on that and realize whatever scenes and, and vignettes you use, they have to move the story along. Otherwise, they're just kind of air. Yeah. As nice as they might be. And I like the I, I like the advice of it has to advance a story because that's a whole like journalism, you know, um exactly. piece of advice too. Because whatever stories we do, it has to advance the overall story. So when you do like when you see like a series of stories on say a new development, the updates have to really push things forward. Otherwise, it's just wasting space, basically. Exactly, and I think as journalists, that's that's what you know. A lot of authors are former journalists, not tons of them, but enough. And and the gift that we have, or the training we have, is that if you succeed in journalism, you have, especially if you're an editor, you have to know what the story is. And so many times, I would I would have a reporter that would come back and say nothing happened. You know, they would go to a really important meeting where they didn't vote, and I would tell them, I said, the vote is not the important part. It's what leads to the vote. Where it was the process? People want to know before once they vote, it's done. You know, people can't do anything. So it took a long time. I used to have a question that I would ask when I was hiring reporters and I would, and they would always give me the same answer. And I would say, are you a writer first or a reporter first? And they always said writer. And that was the wrong answer. It was a lot easier to teach them how to write, figuring they already knew the basics than to teach them how to report. It didn't mean I didn't hire them. But it took a lot of pain sometimes and pushing and saying, this is the story. And that's what people are going to pick up. And when you read a great story, it's exciting. You know, it's like, or shocking, or or there's so many different things. So the same is true and if, for when you're an author. And the other thing I think people need to know, because I run into this all the time, is people say, well, I'm not a writer. Yes, you are. Basically, writing is a craft, not an art. Now, some writers are artists, just like there's Michelangelo or you know Leonardo da Vinci. Not everyone can be that, but almost everybody can write something that's good and understandable. Is it going to be perfect prose? Maybe not. But boy, if you have a good story, doesn't really matter because people are going to read it for that story. That's number one. Exactly. So I always tell people, don't get discouraged. I've run into that so many times. I'm not a writer. I'm not a writer, but I have this story to tell. Well, get down and write it. Yeah. And if you don't know how, learn. Take classes, exactly. join groups, yeah, take talk classes. to the experts. But And yeah. there's different styles. I mean, I, I think you too, Max. You probably, I never, and I knew editors that did, that would take uh, a reporter and they'd rewrite. And they'd change that style to their style. I always wanted, because we were paid so little, is to make sure that the reporter had a psychological benefit to their job. And that meant that when they got that story in the paper and they had their name under it, they felt really good. So I never interfered with their style. 
you know, if some of them had a little flowerier style, some were a little on the short side, or maybe, you know, too many declarative sentences or whatever, but, you know, no passive voice, we get rid of that. But um, it was, you know, that's, you know, you can, you can do that. You know, you've got to have the story and don't worry about the writing that that'll come. Exactly. Now, we talked earlier about the challenges of going from journalism to novelist, but what would you say, what were some of the skills or traits that you think helped you when it came to writing this book? Well, part of it is that we write and we get down to it and we meet deadlines. So um, even though I, other parts of my life, like I really thought when I retired, um, I would become like Martha Stewart and have this beautiful clean house and everything would match and I'd have pillows that did this. None of that's happened. I'm still a very messy person. And if you ever went into most, in fact, the first time I walked into a newsroom at 35 years old, I felt like I I was home. It was in Illinois. We were living outside Arlington Heights. And I walked into the Daily Herald where I was applying to be like a correspondent. And they were going to train different stringers, as we call them. And it was so messy. And people had papers piled up to the ceiling and desks were, and I, comfortable environment. So I thought I'm home. None of these people care if there's dust. So um, I didn't become that. Um, You know, so there are certain things I learned about myself. But um, I find that I love the writing community. I love being with other people, whether they're famous writers or not. I love just people of just struggling along. And um, I have a lot of fun in the different, I'm in a bunch of meetup groups. Um, I just finished another Grub Street course. Um, So I'm having fun and it's really given me a whole new um, kind of post career career. And I'm I'm really enjoying that. Mm. And I find that, but what helps is with our journalism background is the fact that we tend to get down to it. It's kind of like the story needs to be written, so we're going to write it. I mean, or someone else's, and we're going to edit it. So it just makes us makes us keep going. Yeah, I love that story about how you entered the newsroom and thought, "I am so home," because I, I yeah. had a similar feeling when when I when I um so I started off as a correspondent, and yeah. after about a year or so, they hired me full time, and I was like, "Man, this is nice," because I I just kind yeah. of settled right in and got right to it, you know, and. That's the thing about like journalism. I feel like if you, you you know pretty quickly if this is for you. Absolutely. And you have to really love news. And I actually love covering government. And I can remember the first um workshop that we had at the Daily Herald, this um city editor, his name was John Lampinen. I think he might still be there. But there were a whole bunch of people that we were they had an ad in the paper that went down and were trying out for you know, stringer jobs, which is basically being paid by the story. So um, he read a pretend story and um, it started out with an, in, in um, Illinois, they're called aldermen. Um, we're here where they're called selectmen or select boards now or select people. But he read it and said, you know, they did the minutes. They said the Pledge of Allegiance. They signed the warrants. And it went through this whole long, boring thing. And then he said, Joe Murphy stood up in the back of the room, took out a gun and killed the mayor. So the shocking thing was that it was at the bottom. So he said, you know, if somebody kills the mayor, that's your story. You know, forget everything else. So I ended up having to cover a meeting in Wakanda where they bought a fire truck and they went into executive session. I was out like the entire night. So that then we reconvened and this other woman. And if you've ever covered library trustees, you never do again because it's like 
That's the one place there is no story. But she was sent to a library trustees and a car drove into the building. So she was like the star because she came back with the story that the car drove into the building and she forgot about the library trustees. They weren't important anyway. But what was so funny about my story was we had a neighbor section. So there were like 14 editions. It was kind of like the old Patriot Ledger. And the neighbor section had its own front page and it was a big thing. So my story ran on the front page about the fire truck, and I was so excited. And the copy desk changed my name to Betty Ford. <laughs> so my first published story was actually under Betty Ford. Pretty and sure said, that name's How taken did you though. You guys do that, but and it was Betty Ford wasn't the first lady. She had already left that, but she had had her center. So she was kind of in the news, and so he just said, "Mary, I saw Ford, and I thought Betty," and I'm like. But it gave me a story to tell later. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, my God. That's hilarious. Oh, my God. You know, I want to talk a little more about just like transcribing your husband's, you know, many, 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 many tapes. What was involved in, I guess, just constructing how you wanted this story to go? Well, the, the tapes were probably the hardest part because like most people, he didn't go in order. So they were all over the place. And so I'm like, okay, this happened then and this happened that. But I needed to because there were so many colloquialism, colloquialisms and funny vignettes and little things about the South that I needed, whether it was an expression, um, like if somebody fries chicken really well, you say the chicken has a good scald on it. There were little things that we don't say up here that were really key. So that took a long time and I had a lot of pages of typing and it's very hard. I never used a, I didn't until the very end of my career, did I ever bring a recorder to meetings because it was like going to the meeting twice. You had to just learn how to take really good notes. So trying to transcribe and go back and repeat and blah, blah, blah. But I managed and then, then I basically started, you know, going from the beginning. I thought I'm going to go according to the chronology because it has a movement to it. You know, he's 13 when it starts. It's about 19 when the book ends and he does these things where he he runs away and he comes finally comes back and then he runs away again comes back and then runs away again and finally gets back you know and goes to high school so I had that kind of already set which made it much easier than if I was just making something up hmm. but I did struggle and I and I think probably um, some people, you know, in some of the reviews didn't like the flashbacks as much. You know, I had a little trouble with the transitions there. But um, if it's just one of those things. I think it worked, but could it have been better? Probably. Hmm. Not um, perfect. <laughs> nothing, nothing ever is. No. I'm sure if you asked yeah. Stephen King, he would say, oh, yeah, when I wrote like Salem's Lot, this one part just bugs me and I've never been able to forgive myself for it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Happens. <laughs> Any particular story out of all the many that your husband has, any favorites? Yeah, uh, there was an interesting one um, where, so what finally brings him home. So he was in Chicago and he had gone out there. He had a brother and a, two brothers and a sister that had left. Um, there were, with 16 children, there were really three families. So it was the early group that was pretty much gone when he was born the middle group that he looked up to, and then the last four or five that he actually grew up with. So he had, so what happened to him some years before, before he actually went to New Orleans, 
His job in the morning was just what they call slop the hogs, which means feed the hogs. And it was kind of a, you, you take a heavy bucket and you twist and you flip it into their trough. And so he had on his school pants. And back in those days, kids had, had not fancy school clothes, but you had school clothes. And then you had clothes you changed into when you got home. So he twisted. And um, when he did, he ruptured himself. And he didn't tell anybody because it was embarrassing. You know, it was down in that private area and he had a hernia. So we lived with this the hernia all through these travels and everything, kept it to himself. And when he was in Chicago, we had two jobs working in supermarkets, was a lot of lifting and things like that. And um, he's limping and his sister, Ethel, who had two sons, finally, you know, gets it out of him. And she said, well, you have to get home. You know, this is like an emergency. So his brother, John, who lived in Chicago, bought him the ticket and then he flew home and he had the, had the surgery. And um, so in, in East Tennessee, and it's probably true in a lot of areas in the South, talking about operations and health is like a major subject. I mean, everyone talks about their health. I mean, it's a huge thing. So he's, you know, limping kind of down. And he goes down to Earl Graves store where the discussion about his hernia becomes this big to do. So um, it's kind of a funny scene. But anyway, this guy named Rufus comes in with his divorcee girlfriend. And the interesting thing is that um, she's still alive. So I had to change her name. I Googled and I found her. But but her name, and um, she probably won't listen to this. Hopefully, she's way in her 90s. Anyway, this name was incredible. I hated not to use it. Her name was Possum Sweat. I had to change it. I can't even remember what name I used. I tried to find another Southern. But anyway, they were there with her daughter. And so he calmly decides, you know, they'll give me a ride home. And anyway, they they stop at Dottie's. I can't remember if it was like a, a little beer joint. He's in the back seat with their, I think her name was Hortense or something. But anyway, so she puts the moves on him. And uh, this girl, you know, she's a big, like he said, a big country gal. And of course, she's just had this operation. So he just shows her kind of the mercurochrome and the stitches. And she's like, oh, my God, that's really great. So he says, you know, I could have lost my virginity in the back of the car, but I had this hernia situation. So it was one of my favorite little scenes because it's a coming of age thing. And, you know, it's a boy and all this other stuff. Very old fashioned stuff. Mm -hmm. From uh, your social media, you, of course, have been on a bit of a whirlwind tour since this book dropped. You've been doing signings and readings and getting a lot of really Really, really positive reviews. What's that like? Especially because I know some books they get released and just meh, it happens. Yeah. Well, you have to. The hard part is you really have to do it all yourself. So my book is actually self-published through a company called Paper Raven Books. There's tons of them out there, and I and I tell people who might be listening, do your research because there's many ways to publish. You can try the traditional way, which is. you know, get an agent, go to one of the big fives and good luck. I've had several friends that have been published and they've waited years. And I thought, you know, I'm already in my seventies. I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait years. So um, I just happened upon this company. I was, I was on Facebook. And as you all know, if you, if you like read certain things on Facebook, you get a whole bunch more. Like if you like dogs, like I love my dogs in English, Cocker Spaniel, 
I'm in the English Cocker Spaniel groups. And it's like, so this thing popped up where they were running a boot camp, Paper Raven, over three days virtually. And it was only $90, I think. And so I thought I'll sign up. And I was impressed with their whole approach and with the gal who was the CEO and president. And so I learned a lot about um, companies that assist you in the self-publishing process. So you can just publish on Amazon for free, but how are you going to promote? the book and how does it get the metadata and the algorithms so what a company like paper raven and there are others as well they understand is how to do that so what keywords to use for example if you say coming of age story there's like 18 million of them so what do you do in terms of the keywords to make sure that if someone types in teenage runaway your book pops up so I had a really good experience with them for the launch and for the book cover and all of that stuff. And then so we they guarantee that you'll be ranked like number one in three or four categories. So that gets you kind of started. They teach you how to do that. But then really after that, you're kind of on your own. And I developed this whole thing about how am I going to market this? And because I am relatively well known in my little world. I was able to get on the local TV shows because it's Mary Ford who was our editor and Mary Ford this and that. And I donated copies to the local libraries and not, they don't always take quote self-published, but they seem to like it because I got some really good reviews and the local bookstores. And so I continue and like, you know, I'm having this opportunity tonight. I've just a couple of weeks ago, um, there's a program in Hingham called Discovery, the Path to Lifelong Learning. And I gave a talk there and I loved it. Um, I had 40 people. I was young. So um, they were all pretty old, but they loved me. Um, one part of them had already read the book because it was in their writing group. So they had questions, which I loved about the you know the people, like what happened to Betty and who's one of Conley's sisters. And um, I sold a bunch of books and I just had so much fun doing that. So I'm kind of on my own mini marketing. I haven't made... Any, I mean, I've sold about 2,000 books maybe, but that's nowhere enough to pay for everything I've I've done. But at this point, you know, I don't have a home in Florida. I don't play golf. And this is what I love doing. So and I, if it means that I can't buy a new car, that's okay. Hey, as long as you're having like fun. Yeah. yeah. And, I'm, and who knows? I think you make a great movie. It's just a matter of how do you get noticed? Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is these days, I think, it's better because you have a lot more options, of course, with like, you know, Hulu and Netflix yeah. and so forth. There's more opportunities to get picked well, up. Well, they're looking for content. So that's the thing. You just have to, I'm in a couple of, um, I mean, something called Tail Flicked and Story Rocket, which are both these um, kind of companies with, with sites that market to uh, people that would be in Hulu and that kind of thing. So it's just a matter of, um, you know, hanging in there. But, um, I, you know, every opportunity I have, I talk about it and I love talking to people. And so far, you know, I've gotten a lot of great reviews. People love it. It's easy to read. And it, it has a lot of kind of it's an American story. It's kind of an old fashioned, uh, you know, fun story about life, basically, growing up. Exactly. All right, Mary. Now, the big question, the one that everyone wants yeah. to know, is there another book? There is actually, and I won't share the, the total subject, but um, when I first started back in the late 80s and we had moved here, and I'm actually from Situate, but um, 
we were living in Illinois and my husband was transferred to this uh, East Coast. So we bought a home in Situate. I wrote a book and I gave it to um, a friend to read who worked at the Mariner. And he pretty much told me it just wasn't ready for prime time, which I realized. And then I got hired full time. So I put it in the attic. So after I finished and I've done a lot of my marketing, I thought, I need another project. So I found it and it's so old that it was on the kind of commuter paper computer paper that comes out in one long roll with little perforations on the side as little dots. So I'm rewriting that. It's a love story. I'll say that much. And it's based on a true event, but everything else is, is um, made up and I'm having a lot of fun. And so I hope that this spring I'll get that out. Excellent. Excellent. Well, folks, you know what to do. You go to maryfordedit.com. You'll find all the information there. Hey, Mary, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been a lot of fun and cannot wait to, to read this book and to hear about the sequel. Well, Max, thank you so much. I appreciate this opportunity. And um, I want to say hello to all your listeners out there. Max is a great guy. So keep listening. Very talented fellow. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Hi, this is singer Kate Eppers, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout. And that'll bring this episode to a close. Big thanks to Mary for joining me. I really love talking about the story. I got my copy, and you know where to go to get yours. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com and check the show out wherever you find your favorite podcast, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.